This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me on the show as always. And today is Wednesday, hump day, which means... We open up the mailbag. Eric has been perusing the internet, perusing duckterritory.com, soliciting uh, messages and questions to be submitted. And you know it's football season when we have to turn questions away because we have so many good ones that are coming in. So thank you very much for sending in your duck football, duck basketball, duck recruiting questions. We're going to cover all of that on today's podcast. But first, want to remind you guys, you can subscribe today for as low as $1 for your first month, $9.95 thereafter that, or subscribe with the annual membership route, $75.18 to one-time payment. But you compare that to the monthly rate and you pay, you save over $36 a month. Both options come with the additional CBS All Access Edition, which is a free service for you with your subscription to DuckTerritory.com. Normally, it's going to cost you about $100 to get that service. Live TV, commercial-free shows, movies, on-demand, sports, uh, CBS All Access streaming platform for all of your TV movie and sports needs. All right, Eric, six questions on the podcast today. Uh, wide range of topics as well. Let's get, let's get into this. Yeah. Start here from at Tosh Myers. Is Tyler Shuck the best quarterback in the PAC 12 North hashtag odds and audibles? Ooh. I think it's, it's good question. I think, I'm going to say it's slightly premature to make a call one way or the what? other. You're not going to make a call one week after <laughs> one week. <laughs> yeah, I'm not ready to say that quite yet after one game, especially when two of the teams literally didn't play. And then Davis Mills, Stanford's full-time starting quarterback, didn't play either. So I'd say Tyler Shuck of the three quarterbacks who played on Saturday was the most impressive, that being Jaden Delora from Washington State, Tristan Gebbia from Oregon State. And again, I'm not going to include Stanford's Jack West because he's not going to be the full-time starter when when uh, Davis, Davis Mills, Mills is back. The, uh, Which yeah, he's back break. this week. This is yeah. keeping one. So, like, I think it's too early to make a call there. I think let's do it. Let's make a call. I'm going to push it? you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> uh, boy, uh, with absolutely no evidence, <laughs> with, with, with the smallest sample size possible, I'm going to say yes, I guess. I, I mean, I, here's what I'll say is I, I think he was, again, the most impressive from this last weekend. And I think... I think by like the third week of the season, I think we're going to start being more comfortable saying that. I'm curious to see Delora this weekend for Washington State. You go, I posted a story on DuckTerrier.com, true freshman quarterback for Washington State. The rare four-star recruits from the state of Hawaii where Nick Rolovich is from actually committed prior to that um, when Leach was there. But either way, big-time recruit up there. He looked good in the first game too. Going to be curious to see how he performs against Oregon secondary, which, as we know, is a big step up from what Oregon State has. But um, I, I think that's going to be a test there as well. But, like, I, I think Shuck has the makings of being a first-team all-conference guy, right? I mean, like, I know Keaton Slovis has his, had his moments, and this is not Pac-12 North specific, but I'm just going to broaden the topic. 
Like Slovis had his moments down the stretch to help USC win that game through two touchdowns, but he was pretty bad until that point. And Jaden Daniels had his moments until the end of the game. But like, I, I think Chuck has the upside and we talked about this before the season started to be the top quarterback in the conference. So, yeah, I mean, again, this is like certainly very premature. Try not to do that too frequently, but like, I, I don't think it's ridiculous to, to suggest that Tyler Chuck will be the best quarterback in the Pac-12 North. I just think right now I'm a little bit gun shy to be like, he's the best quarterback in the Pac-12 North. And what if he comes out, lays a couple of eggs and some of the other quarterbacks jump out and, and play better? Um, are you ready to make that call or, or, or is this kind of like the election and we're going to have to wait a while? Um, I, I, I'm with you. I, I think he probably looked the most impressive week one out of the group yeah. uh, that did play. He has the second highest quarterback rating in the Pac-12 conference at 143.73. Colorado's Sam Neuer had a higher rating of a 144.81. So they're very similar there. Um, from a completion percentage standpoint, uh, Keaton Slovis leads the conference going into the second week, but he's in the Pac-12 South. Uh, Tristan Jebia from Oregon State completed 70% of his passes, but almost 71 really, um, but only threw one touchdown, had a quarterback rating of 135, so he's you know significantly lower than, than Chuck is. Threw the ball a heck of a lot more. Threw for more yardage, though. Um, Jack West had a higher completion percentage than Tyler Shuck. Shuck did complete those 65% of his throws. Um, you want to compare Shuck's 143.73 quarterback rating to a national level. And this just kind of gives you a, an indication of where his first one, his first game lands. Uh, 41st best in the country. So from a passing perspective, um, He's middle of the conf- middle of the country right now, but that doesn't take into the fact that he ran for 85 yards. He ran for a touchdown on 11 carries, and and so you have to factor, I think, that into the picture here as well. Um, I thought Jaden uh, Delora from from Washington State looked pretty darn impressive in his first game um, for the Cougars, and I, I look at this and think. You know, 227 for him through the air, 43 yards and a touchdown on the ground. Uh, very very similar stats to what Shuck did, maybe just yeah. a little bit less. Um, curious to see how these two guys duke it out. And Shuck also did say, though, that you know he missed some throws, and there were some things that he should have cleaned up last week that you, know, you would hope to see cleaned up this week against Washington State. Like you, I think we'll have a better idea in a couple weeks. Um, I think certainly the potential is there for him to be the best quarterback in, in, in the North division. And, and honestly, Eric, like, would you be really that surprised that after December 17th or whenever the season is over and let's just assume uh, all these games are played, which is a big assumption. Um, sure is. But let's just assume all, you know, the remaining games are played. Would it be surprising to you that Shuck is the best quarterback in the conference? I don't know if it would be for me. Like, I probably am going to say Jaden Daniels or, or Keaton Slovis, but it wouldn't be out of the complete realm of possibilities either for him to, to, to make that list. No, no, I'm with you. I think we're in the same spot where it's like the potential is there. And I know there were some up and down moments on Saturday. I also will say we just spoke with him earlier today in an interview. This guy is really sharp and a really great ambassador for the program. So he checks the boxes, not just in terms of like, this is the first time we saw him play in the field, but like seeing him as the starting quarterback and how he, um, I think Joe Moorhead used this word, comports himself 
uh, as a leader, like it comes across even in interviews. So like, no, I'm not going to be surprised at all. And I, and I, I think I feel much better, even though there were some up and down moments against Stanford about kind of what Oregon's at at quarterback than I did going into the game. And I'm not going to be surprised at all if we're talking like that. I mean, that's the thing about this position this year is there's no clear cut guy, right? I mean, there's, you don't return a Justin Herbert and we should know Justin Herbert wasn't the first team all conference quarterback. He wasn't even second team last year. Um, there's no Anthony Gordon who was second team last year, or um, I'm blanking on the name of the Utah quarterback, uh, Tyler Huntley, I believe is his name from last year, who I think was first team all conference quarterback last year. I think none of those guys are, are there. So like it was, it's an open thing. Like, I mean, I don't think it's crazy at all to suggest that like, especially the Pac-12 North, every quarterback is new besides Chase Garbers at California. I mean, this is a brand new group of quarterbacks. So like, I think Shuck absolutely has a chance to do that. We haven't seen either Cal or Washington even play this year. And again, Davis Mills didn't play um, at Autzen on Saturday. And I, I think that would have been added to at least the intrigue of this discussion. But yeah, I'm not going to be surprised at all. I, mean, I, I think it's totally up. I think that's totally possible. He has the talent and, and the capabilities. And again, I think the leadership to be that kind of guy. I mean, just think of he missed, I think he missed a touchdown pass when they got into the red zone in the, and I think it was the fourth quarter um, and they had to settle for a field goal, which they missed. Um, his numbers would look even better if that happened, uh, that touchdown pass where now all of a sudden it's two touchdowns, one interception plus a rushing touchdown. Mm-hmm. He probably would have, would have thrown for over 250 yards. Um, and then I think that discussion becomes more serious if if a couple throws weren't missed week one but they weren't he missed on them he threw he threw a really bad interception uh in in the first half he had another one that probably should have happened and so it's gonna have to come now in the next couple of weeks to see what kind of adjustments do we see um do, do we see him you know run through his reads even quicker uh be more decisive with his with his decision making uh, be very smart with when he tucks it and 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 runs the football. Uh, when does he check down? And all of these things. What are the improvements that we're going to see from him? And then we could get him into um, that discussion. I will say this: um, I watched a lot of that USC Arizona State game mm-hmm. over the weekend, and Keaton Slovis throws one ugly football, <laughs> like I had forgotten how wobbly that ball is through the air. He had a bad interception in that game. Um, he throws for a ton of yards, but that's probably because of the offense. I mean, he had a, a conference high of 55 attempts. He did complete 72% of his passes. Jaden Daniels actually, from a completion, from a qu- pure quarterback perspective, wasn't all that good. You know, just 11 of 23 for 134 yards and and one touchdown. And then you factor in, though, the, the rushing and he had 11 carries for 111 yards. That really changes the, the scope of his his game. But I I, I think he's in that going to be in that discussion where end of the year top quarterback in the conference. The thing Slovis has going for him, absolutely incredible receivers. Oh yes, he has the best <laughs> receivers in the conference. Maybe Wait, the country, the, maybe the country. I, I mean, it's up for debate. I mean, the two guys who caught the the two touchdowns in the last couple of minutes there to win it aren't even their top two guys. I mean, one of them. <laughs> One of them, Brew McCoy, like that was that was a complete. I mean, it was just a lucky catch. The ball bounces off somebody. He catches in the end zone, and then Drake London is a stud. <laughs> He's really, really good too, and he had the game winner. So, I mean, um, just it's real awesome. quick, like not to cut you off, but, but they had two guys go over 100 yards in that game. Drake London, eight, eight receptions, 125 yards. 
Uh, Amon Ross, St. Brown, seven receptions, 100 yards. And then they had Vaughn's with 53 yards, McCoy with 51. Like, I, I look at their receivers and think any four of those guys, you put them on Oregon's roster, and I think they're top two in they're not the, they're not top two talent wise, but from a production standpoint, receiving yards, receptions, touchdowns, they're probably top two on the team. I'll put this into perspective a little bit here. Uh, Devin Williams was on that team not yeah. that long ago. He transferred in part because he just wasn't going to play. Um, and I know Devin is probably their fourth or fifth receiver in Oregon's depth chart. He had one catch for nine yards on Saturday. So it's not like he came to Oregon as like a superstar immediately. Um, but that tells you all, and that tells you a lot there. I, I think you run through those four names. We talked about a receiver at USC. Those are all NFL guys. Those guys are going to play on Sundays, super talented group. And again, Keaton Slovis is the beneficiary of that where you give again, like I mean, we talked about this last year, you give Justin Herbert, those receivers in that offense. And yeah. there's probably a completely different discussion around Justin. Yeah, I was just going to say, we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but it, I think you're seeing in the NFL how good Justin is when he has high-level receivers to throw the football to um, because it, he's taking everyone by storm right now in the conference or in, in the National Football League, whereas I think you, me, everyone that's kind of watched Oregon or covered this team have kind of said, like, he could make all the throws. He makes good decisions. It's just – he had to go pinpoint accuracy in some cases because of injuries, because of lack of depth, because of uh, pure lack of talent around him at the receiving spot. I think Oregon has solved some of those problems this season for 2020. Um, I think we've said it before time and time again, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, Micah Pittman, three of the best receivers in the conference. They all three can make impressive catches are just dudes. But at some point, Physical attributes matter, and Oregon doesn't have that six foot four, six foot three, six foot five type guy who can run like a deer and go across the middle and have the size and catch radius to catch everything. And you know, I, I thought that cost them a potential touchdown against Stanford. Uh, he, Tyler Shuck threw a, a dime of a pass uh, to Chris Hudson in the right corner of the end zone, but. 5'11 matched up against a 6'2 corner and the Stanford corner just went up the ladder and, and tipped the ball away. You know, Hudson had no chance uh, to really catch that ball. Now, if he was 6'4 or 6'5, which isn't Hudson's fault, he had a, he would have probably a better opportunity and probably likely would have scored. All right, last tangent because we've had like 13 on this question alone <laughs> and we don't want this to be a two-hour podcast. Um, just going to say, we're talking about USC's receivers in such glowing terms. It's not out of this realm of possibility in the slightest that by – Two years from now, we're talking about Oregon's receivers in the same way with the recruiting class yes. they have right now and the talent they already have on the roster. There's my final tangent. Let's move on to at Benjamin Smucker's question here. Um, with walk-on Ryan Walk, and he puts in uh, parentheses, so many great pun opportunities, earning a scholarship and starting, who are your favorite Ducks from the past who started as walk-ons? Great question from Benjamin here. Very timely. Um, go check out. I, I wrote about a 1,000 words on Tuesday afternoon on Ryan Walk's journey. Got some great quotes there from Tyler Shuck, one of Ryan's roommates and close friends, kind of about what that's been like to seeing Ryan develop and kind of the trials and tribulations of Ryan Walk. And we should note, if, if you haven't seen it, you probably have by now. Ryan was one of the Pro Football Focus's top offensive linemen in the country this last week, and he was named the Pac-12's Offensive Lineman of the Week. What a special week for, for Ryan Walk to not only get his own his, his first start in Austin Stadium, somebody who grew up down the road at Sheldon High School, um, but also to just go out and perform like that and receive, you know, offensive line doesn't always get a lot of accolades, but for someone like him to get those in his first uh, career start, 
um, a former walk-on, a walk-on, literally it was a walk-on like two weeks ago. Really, really cool story there. Um, to the question here about favorite past walk-ons, um, I had a couple that came to mind. I think most recently, um, Kalana Apello was somebody who I just thought like totally embodied what a walk-on was. He's a player who was like, what, maybe 5'10", 5'11", 200 pounds, started at linebacker his senior year. Fortunately, he got hurt. Um, he's a guy that like, if he was 6'3", or 6'2", even maybe, and had a little bit broader shoulders, probably going to be like an all-conference guy, maybe an NFL player. Um, always loved watching him play. Honestly, always liked talking to him. He was really a thoughtful interview. Um, and then, you know, a, a couple going back further, obviously comes to mind. TJ Ward um, came to Oregon as part of that um, De La Salle group of talented players. Didn't have a scholarship. Ends up getting one pretty quickly. Has a great college career. Obviously goes on in the NFL. I think at least I think he's still in the NFL. Like, yeah, I was going to say, I think he's still in the NFL and, and has been a pretty celebrated player there. Um, and if he's not in the NFL now, it's, it's probably, you know, was just on last year's. I don't know. I, I'd have to go look. I don't have that off the top of my head. He's just gotten old. And, and yeah. Yeah, he's just gotten older. But like, those are just, I mean, you know, just a couple off the top of my head there. Um, I, I guess just another one, and it's, it's not quite as exciting, but like, I remember when Taylor Alley from Sheldon got an opportunity to start. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Another walk on. A um, couple of cool, you know, Sheldon connections there in terms of walk-ons, and I'm sure there are numerous. There's also Chris things. Tatterton. There you go. I was going to say, why don't we throw it to Matt? Because those are kind of the three off the top of my head that I kind of thought of, and I'm sure there are going to be a bunch that I that I didn't remember. Yeah, Chris Tatterton was a walk-on from Sheldon High School. Um, he played in that uh, 2000. He started at defensive line for that 2001 team uh, that would go on to play. Um, Colorado in the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, I, I think another one you brought up. Um, you, you you brought up TJ Ward. That's one that I think automatically checks the list for me. Sure. Um, defensively, um, one that really just immediately went to my head um, was Wesley Mallard. Uh, oh, there you go. That's that, a good one too. A yeah. guy that showed up as a walk on and had a crazy story, like. He was born in Georgia, but I think he was like uh, a son of um, some, I think his dad was in the military. And I, if I remember correctly, he started high school in South Korea and then would later on move to Georgia for his senior year, I think, and played like one year of high school football. There. I have no idea how a guy from Georgia who's there for one year because he was born in Georgia um, gets to, to Eugene, but he walks on at Oregon and we all know about the huge like kickoff hit that block that he made early on in his career, but would later on lead the ducks and tackles in 2000 and I think 2001, uh, that same year that Chris Tedderton was on that team. Um, and then was later on go and get drafted in the sixth round of the 2002 NFL draft and ended up, you know, playing from 2002 to 2008, uh, with, with NF, you know, multiple NFL teams, Giants, Patriots, Buccaneers, Broncos, and ultimately um, ended his career with the Seahawks in 2008. So like, I, th I think that's another guy that I think really was a standout walk-on. And look, I, I'm sure I'm missing a ton of guys that have gone on and done things. Um, Apelu, like you mentioned that one, that's an automatic. You have to mention it. Um, I, I think a guy that maybe didn't do 
a ton on the football field, but even to this day still makes a lasting impact uh, for the university of Oregon is Andy O'Brown, the running back. Um, he, he showed up, I think same year as Jonathan Stewart and is now currently working at, I think it with uh, multicultural services at the university of Oregon also runs, I think their, their gospel choir um, isn't yeah. involved in, in uh, the black lives matter community and, and, and focusing stuff with that, with the university of Oregon. So he's a huge guy that's made a huge impact off the field. Um, I got two more. There's also a linebacker, Brent, uh, Brent Haverly from Cottage yeah. Grove. I got two more here that John to me. One's really obvious. And that was Blake Maimon, last year's punter, who was just fantastic. Um, you know how much I love punters and you know how much I love walk-ons. So like, that's yes. like, I don't know why that wasn't off the top of my head. And another one here I, I thought of was Matt Pearson. Um, from yeah. 2015. Yeah. It was a walk-on from Jesuit. Uh, ended up starting 11 games in 2015 um, on the offensive line. Uh, just another one of those cool stories seeing offensive linemen throughout their career kind of make that move. And I bet you there are a lot we're missing, especially like on special teams. I'm sure there are numerous kickers and punters that came here in walk-on variety as, as, as opposed to being on scholarship, just because you see that happen. Um, but yeah, those are some that came off the top of my head. I think, I think that's a pretty good like summary of, of at least a bunch of them. Um, I think Ryan Walk is going to be one that like, Maybe he's going to have been kind of the best of them all if you exclude a TJ Ward guy who was like certainly recruited to Oregon as a walk-on. And I know Ryan was also a preferred walk-on, but like TJ Ward was somebody who like, I think people had an inkling when he came, like it was possible he was going to be really good. He just had a couple of leg injuries and walk had the same thing. He dealt with an injury at Sheldon that kind of stopped, you know, stymied his recruitment a little bit. Um, but really a cool story. Again, Ryan walk, I, I think it's, it's been one of the best parts so far of this really early, early on in the season but one of the, my favorite parts of fall camp was kind of learning more about him and his progression. And then seeing him out, go out there and actually do it on Saturday and very cool national honors. Super cool. All right. Uh, third question before we get to the break here from at crystal Orndorff. Do you think Oregon will flip a recruit that's currently committed elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, I'm going to throw this one to you. What do you think? Is there, is there a possibility of someone, you know, flipping from another school to Oregon? Um, I, I think, it's I'm not going to sit here and say it's automatic. I feel very right. certain, very, very hard uh, feelings about that. I do wonder what happens with four star outside linebacker, Rajon Davis, who's currently committed to the LSU Tigers, 38th best player in the country, third best outside linebacker in the country, um, six foot two, 215 pounds. Oregon is a major player. Oregon continues to talk to him and he's from, he's from, Southern California, Matter Day High School, a powerhouse school, a, a school that's kind of turned into a feeder program for the University of Oregon. Um, I, I Davis says he's still committed to, to LSU. He's firm with that commitment. But we saw LSU try and land a couple guys out west. They were able to help hold on to a couple of them, but they had you know, the last couple of cycles, but they've had some guys either transfer out. They've had some guys decommit Jaden Navarrete being one of them who's on the team now yep. uh, for Oregon. He was from a, a West coast, Southern California prospect committed to LSU in the summer, uh, a couple, I think a cycle ago. And then uh, he's now a true freshman who's enrolled at Oregon. Um, I know the ducks continue to recruit Rajon Davis. And this is a case in which maybe things continue to go South for the defending national champion, LSU Tigers. And they continue to see losses mount 
The defense looking horrible. Oregon maybe gets a couple wins and knocks things off and really gets into that playoff discussion. Maybe Oregon could, could pull a late flip here. It's a guy that would be really, really interesting to see at Oregon. And you talked about, well, obviously, we know what Oregon did last year. Um, boy, if, if, if that works out and he ends up part of this class, you know, and, and this year's class, again, you look at the commitments, the, the majority of them are on the offensive side of the ball. I think you needed that considering last year those top three five stars were all defensive players. The year before that, Kayvon Thibodeau was a five star. Mikhail Wright, Mace Funa, big time players on defense. You needed offensive players in this class. But getting a player like that of that caliber from the West Coast, getting him to stick around, and, and you know, I think I just love it when these West Coast kids don't jump to the East, you know, Oregon or not. And obviously, there's some competitive balance issues here. Of like, if you guess if you're an Oregon fan, you probably would prefer them to go play in the SEC or the ACC or the Big Ten. But like. I think if you're just a fan of the conference and you want the conference to do well, which, which does help Oregon, you want to keep these guys out West. And so if he, whether it's Oregon or another school out West, I, I want these kids to stay in the footprint and um, boy, it would be huge to get a flip like that. Um, like Matt says, can't guarantee anything, but that's certainly something I know we had an update um, a couple weeks ago, I think from Greg Biggins on that. Uh, certainly I mean, something it, to keep an eye on. It, it's also kind of a, does it make sense for, or like, yes. Do you want the, the, a top 40 player to, in the country to be in your commit list. Absolutely. But is that when you've only got, let's just say Oregon's only got two spots left. Is it better to use one of those two spots at a cornerback spot, a defensive line spot, an offensive lineman? Um, maybe you go and get another running back. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Uh, safety. Yeah. Uh, sure. When you know that you have a couple guys that are outside linebackers already committed to your team, you have Brandon Buckner, you have Terrell Tillman, you have Jabril McNeil, you have Christian Buckhalter. Um, you've got four guys there that all have the ability to play outside linebacker. Um, you've also got uh, Jeffrey Bossa, who I think could be that hybrid type safety slash linebacker at six foot three, 200 pounds. Um, you, you could argue that Terrell Tillman's also more of a speed rush defensive end at six four two twenty. 220. Um, We'll see what happens there. Christian Burkhalter from, from Alabama, he plays defensive end, um, outside linebacker-ish right now for his high school team. And Oregon's recruiting him primarily as an outside linebacker. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But like, is it is it w worth really using uh, one of those two limited spots when you've got a couple other guys who are looking at you that play other positions at outside linebacker um, so that that's one decision you have to make. But then, like, let's all of a sudden just find out, like, okay, Corey Foreman calls Oregon and says, hey, I love you guys, but I'm not coming. I'm, you're officially out. Uh, JTT, uh, Tulumalo, the same position defensive end, he calls Oregon and says, I love you guys, but I'm out. I'm not, I'm not coming here. Um, you, you can stop recruiting me. And then all of a sudden it becomes, okay, well, do you go after Sierra, right? Do you go after – Bryce Foster, is there other commits that are other schools that you're going after? Uh, or, or maybe you you could flip a, a Rajon Davis. Then I think once you get some clarity at some of these other positions, whether it's yeah. a Foster or a Wright or a Foreman or who, whoever it is, if they say, we're not coming, stop recruiting me, we're not coming to Eugene, then the addition of Rajon Davis becomes even, I think, more important to go after and try and flip because – you now don't have to worry about, well, if we take Rajon at a spot where we've already got four commitments, we could lose out on uh, a, a Corey Foreman. That's where it gets where like it makes sense to go after him. If, if you get clarity on some of these other guys that are, that are being recruited. 
we should note this stuff's going to start coming together really quickly here. Um, early signing period starts in about a month, December 16th. Um, the basketball signing period is literally today. <laughs> so um, like this is, this is signing period. It's starting to pick up here. And I think certainly keep an eye on duckterry.com. We'll have a lot more of this insights and the recruiting stuff. Obviously it's unfortunate, but Oregon and other schools can't host official visits and that's going to have a direct correlation somehow this stuff plays out. But um but yeah, keep, keep an eye. We'll, we'll be continuing, I think, over these next couple of weeks. And because again, a month from now is the early signing period, just to kind of see all this stuff is going to play out. All right, that's going to... All right, that's going to be the middle of the show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Eric and I will run through the other three questions here for the mailbag. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, welcome back to the Autzen Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scoble is with me as always. And we're three questions in, three more questions to go for this mailbag. Fourth question from at Andrew J. Cohen, 22. If Cal football continues to face COVID-related issues causing them to cancel more games, does this, one, lock up the North for the Ducks? Two, does this hurt Oregon's college football hopes because the strength of schedule is worse if they can't play the Bears? Or does this matter at all? And he says, thanks, with an exclamation point. <laughs> and, I, and, and you're welcome, Andrew. I appreciate it. You saying thank you. Let's be, uh, let's, yeah, that, that's always appreciated. Um, you know, we should note that it looks like Cal is, I believe, going to have a, a more clarity in the next couple of days of whether they can even play this weekend. Um, the fact that they didn't play Washington in the first game, let's, let's just let's talk about that rather than trying to figure out what the future is going to look like. Does it help the Ducks? I don't think it necessarily does. I mean, I, I mean, it I, hurts I think, them. You need games. You're already behind the the eight ball with playing fewer games than everybody else. Exactly. Like, I actually think this is like kind of not great for anybody in the conference. Like, I don't know if you can really make an argument that it is. Um, like, and also we should note, like, Cal and Washington are arguably Oregon's two biggest Pac-12 yep. North. You need this game, competitors, and you needed that game to be played so one of those teams took a loss. And I know that this could get weird where. You know, Oregon, the fortunate thing, Oregon does get to play each of these teams head-to-head, right? So, like, they have a chance to control their own destiny here in terms of the Pac-12 North. So, ultimately, that game doesn't, quote-unquote, matter that much. At the same time, like, what if Oregon drops one of those games? And now, and now those teams didn't play each other. Maybe those teams went out, and the fact that they didn't play each other, what if Oregon is 5-1 and one with a loss to, let's just say, Cal on the road, and Cal is 5-0 and because oh, they didn't play Washington in a game that they very well could have lost, 
right? I mean, I think that's where you have to be kind of aware of that part. So I don't think it really helps and in terms of the strength of schedule. Sh- no, none of this stuff helps. Um, you know, I, so like, does it not matter at all? No, I think all of this matters a great deal. And it's like, I am hopeful and, and we should know we're, we're recording this Tuesday afternoon. We're seeing Alabama and LSU just got postponed. I think Tennessee and Texas A&M are either reportedly going to or already have announced. Matt may have more clarity on that, that they're going to postpone their game. There, I think it wouldn't hurt Oregon at all if these all these games getting pushed back or canceled maybe gives the college football playoff and the NCAA kind of more of an understanding of like, okay, maybe we should be a little bit more flexible because like the December – 19th date to complete your season is completely arbitrary, right? I mean, like it doesn't have to be that date. Like I think really the best case scenario for all of these teams is to be able to have some time to make these games up and you can accomplish that by fiddling with that date. Maybe you say it's instead of December 19th, it's sometime in January and that gives the Pac-12 a chance to make up some of these games and maybe it gives them a chance to, hey, maybe Oregon now gets to play USC during the regular season or they get to play an extra, you know, Pac-12 South crossover game and that gives them more opportunity. So I'm hoping, you know, I shouldn't say I'm hoping because I don't want anyone to be infected with COVID and I don't want games to be canceled, but I'm, I'm, I guess wondering aloud and thinking it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for Oregon and the rest of the PAC 12. If some of these other conferences inability to get games in maybe gives the NCAA and the college football playoff pause in terms of that date. And they push it back a little bit. I mean, that's something that makes sense to you, right, Matt? Yeah, like there's five games. Are, we're recording Tuesday, and there's five games that have already been canceled as of this recording. Alabama, LSU has been postponed. Texas A&M, Tennessee has been postponed. Auburn at Mississippi State has been postponed. That's three games with a ranked team playing in that game, uh, not playing. Two of those, Alabama and A&M, are top five teams who have now seen their games postponed. Memphis is one of the leaders in the AAC, Air Force and Wyoming, while they're not in contention for the Mountain West Conference Championship because they've got two losses. Nonetheless, uh, they both are dealing with games being canceled as well. And it's only going to, it feels like it's only going to go up. We're seeing more and more people, mm-hmm. uh, more and more universities reporting. COVID cases, uh, it was reported by John Bowen of the Mercury News this week that a Washington State player has COVID. Um, it, we know that they had 32 players with the Cougar team out for undisclosed reasons, and Rolovich, the head coach, would not say yes or no if it was COVID-related or not. Um, I'm sure all of them aren't COVID-related. I, I, we actually know at least one of them, Max Borgi, the star running back, has a neck issue. It's not COVID-related. But you have to wonder how much of that is COVID related, whether that's positive test or contact tracing. Um, you know, Popo Amave from, from Oregon, uh, he, he missed a game and he shared on social media that it was due to contact tracing. Don't know if he has it, but it, he, he shared that it was contact tracing why he couldn't play against Stanford. Stanford had their starting quarterback, uh, Connor Weddington, one of their best receivers, another, def- I think a defensive back, all have to sit out the Oregon game because of contact tracing. Uh, it, it's it's a deal in which more and more cases are going up. And I think we're going to see more and more frequency of games being postponed or canceled. And unfortunately for the for the Pac-12 conference, they have no wiggle room. They have no no open dates to make up games. They, they chose to play late in the year to start their season and presented a, a, a schedule in which they had no margin for error. And if you had to postpone or cancel a game, it was done. You weren't going to make it up. Um, it's not helpful for Oregon if 
if Cal loses games, it's not helpful for Oregon if they lose a game in terms of being able to play, what, regardless of win or lose. Um, I, I think you look at a, a situation in which how can Oregon, like you said, how can Oregon benefit if there is a way to benefit from this? And I feel dirty saying the word benefit exactly. COVID-19 related issues. Exactly. But yeah. the season for Oregon to really have the best case scenario to make the college football playoff is to play one or two more regular season games. And to do that, they're going to need the conference to have very minimal impact from COVID-19. Oregon will, will have to be able to play all six games plus that championship weekend, find a, you know, and then hope that the college football playoff committee says, you know what? We were going to announce December 19th, the final rankings. The SEC has got a bunch of big games that have been canceled uh, the big, maybe let the Big Ten with Wisconsin being, you know, postponed for a couple weeks, and maybe something else happens. They come forward and say, "Look, we wanted to do this by the 19th, but maybe it's best if if we give everybody one more week to have a makeup game and and play some of these big games that need to be played, so we have a true understanding of who the better teams are." And that then has to require. This is a lot of ifs. And honestly, <laughs> like honestly, a lot of forward thinking too that I don't know if the Pac-12 conference necessarily can do have the ability to say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to put Oregon against Utah week seven. And then we're also going to put, you know, the conference, the next week will be conference championship week. And if you don't make the championship game, we'll do another round of, of, you know, Pac-12 North versus Pac-12 South type games and all of a sudden you go from playing seven to eight games and maybe all of a sudden Oregon goes from going six and oh with wins against California wins against Washington. Then they play a Utah. Maybe let's just say that for an example and they beat Utah and then they go and they play USC. Now all of a sudden their schedule looks a lot better uh, and they've played some of the, the meteor teams on the schedule, but it's going to take a lot of work and they can't afford to have Cal, they can't afford to have Oregon. And quite frankly, they can't afford anyone in the conference to continue to have games canceled. Yeah. And we shouldn't be surprised, I think, that there are spiking cases. And we don't want to dump too far into this. But, I mean, it wasn't long, a couple, about a week ago was Halloween, about 10 days ago. And that's the kind of – I mean, it makes sense that there would potentially be an increase in cases during that time of year. All right, let's move on to at Scott underscore MBT. Why didn't we see Dante Manning more? And how many snaps did Flo get? He can pressure the QB on blitzes. He puts three exclamation points there. Let's see our five stars play. Also an exclamation point there. Just to start here, remember last year, KT wasn't exactly like playing every snap in the first game against Auburn, right? He really didn't. I mean, he played, but he wasn't making major contributions really until Gus Cumberlander went down. I think it's a lot to ask these guys to come in and play more. And why didn't we see Manning or Flo play more? Well, they'd have to unseat for, for, for Dante Manning, D.D. Lenore or McHale Wright, two extremely talented players that are going to be, I think, early NFL draft picks. Can you really can you really argue that a true freshman, five-star or not, is, is really going to be deserving to jump in there and, and do that? And the same thing for Flo. And I know fans love to see these five-star recruits play, but the reality is Isaac Slade Mato Atia is Oregon's best linebacker. I don't know if he's going to be the best linebacker at the end of the season. I think Noah Sewell looked like he could take it over at some point. But like right now, ISM is the team's best linebacker. And Flo's playing right behind him. You need ISM on the field because he is the leader of the defense. He is undoubtedly the most experienced player in that unit. It's not even close. I mean, there's not really anybody else. I mean, the, no other player has starting experience 
um, or more than at least a game or so inside. in that entire unit. Yeah, on the inside, Dan, Isaac, Slade, Mato, Atia. You need him out there. And we, I think we discussed it on Monday's show when we were looking, kind of ref- ref- reflecting back on the weekend. Like Slade, Mato, Atia is clearly the leader of not just that group, but maybe the leader of the entire defense. And you need those guys out there. Um, do I think you can find roles for those guys? Absolutely. The five stars, these five-star talents are five-star talents for a reason. These are blue chip recruits for a reason. You don't look at these guys and think they're going to be busts. No indication so far that they are not super talented and can't make contributions. But the reality is they both play at positions where there are really talented players before ahead of them on the depth chart, players with starting experience. So um, I think we're going to see more of them as the season plays on. I think we could see maybe Justin Flo, he mentions that he could get after the quarterback on blitzes. I'm not in total disagreement there. Maybe there are going to be some opportunities to get him um, on the field in certain circumstances where you want to bring a blitz up the middle from the linebacker position that, you know, um, he's playing the mic spot. Maybe we'll see that, but I also just wouldn't, I don't think you can discount the players ahead of him on the depth chart who are all experienced and, and also very, very talented. I think all the guys I just mentioned have NFL futures. People like to just assume that because a guy is a five-star recruit, he's automatically day one going to be one of the best players on the team. And look, that happens. Like we saw that last year with KT, um, a guy in, it, who showed up as the number one recruit in the country and instantly was one of the team's top, what, 10 players on the team? Yeah. Um, and I go back. And look at this list of guys, though, five-star players that have signed with Oregon. Hello, Dinata, another guy that instantly was one of the better players on the team. Jonathan Stewart, he really wasn't a full-time starter we, you know, his, his first year. Um, Cameron Colvin, certainly one of you – know, he didn't play really up to his level until his senior year. Um, D'Anthony Thomas was one. Eric Armstead had mixed results, I think. You know, very, very solid, very good freshman, but he wasn't – um, one of the team's best 10 or 15 players on that year. Canton Kamatule, he did not play. He, he didn't make much of an impact. He didn't even finish his career at Oregon. Thomas Tyner, um, limited. I, I, I honestly think this, this is, in my eyes, the comparison of a career, a freshman year of what Flo and Sewell will have. Mm-hmm. And it's different positions, and I realize that. But if you go and look at, at, at Thomas Tyner's, you know, coming out of high school, he was the number one running back in the country. Um, he was a five-star recruit, 20th best player. And he showed up at Oregon and he played in all 12 games. For, he played in 12 games for the Ducks, had 115 carries, ran for 711 yards, nine touchdowns, had almost 150 yards receiving. And you, you looked at that and said, he was really good. He was impactful, but he wasn't one of the better players on the team that year. I think that's probably going to be what happens with a Noah Sewell and a Justin Flo. I think Noah Sewell probably has the better opportunity to elevate himself and force himself into that discussion where he is starting and he is a top 15, top 10 player on the team. And in fact, I'll say, it, yeah. I, I expect Noah Sewell to to probably start here in a couple of weeks or maybe as early as this week. I, I yeah. think I think he was better um, at linebacker than Drew Mathis was. I, I but I don't think it was like part of it's because of just athletic God given talent. He's just a totally different dude than Drew Mathis. 
but there were plenty of mistakes early on with with Noah Sewell, you know, missing you know, holes to fill, you know, not reading the plays and guessing instead, and it costing them. I mean, he had a he had a, a he guessed on a touchdown run for for Stanford. Um, he also had an impressive play where he blew up the offensive line. And he had another one where he, where he blew up a run play and got a big tackle for loss. So I think Sewell will probably eventually take over that starting job. Could be this week. Justin Flo, though, you're right. Like he's playing behind Isaac Slate and Matuatia. And this is a guy in which everyone on the defense last year said he was one of the better players on the team. Everyone on the team this year says he's one of the better players on the team and his leadership is uns. You, you can't put a, a value on it because it's that high. Um, it, you, ha- you can't replace that. And sometimes, while Flo may may have the better physical attributes than an Isaac Slade, Matuatia, it doesn't always just necessarily mean just because you're physically gifted, you're automatically going to be this superstar. It takes time. And I, I think you know we're seeing that. He's going to have an impact on this team, no doubt about it. He's going to see the field a ton. But right now, would you rather have a true freshman playing an inside linebacker who's unproven and manning a, you know, a, the most important position on, on the defense? That's where Isaac Slade is playing right now. Or would you rather have a guy that was on one of the best defenses in the country and was fourth on the team in tackles on that defense last year, manning that most important position? Like, yeah, I'm with it, you. Like the coaches didn't, the coaches didn't see enough from Flo week one or during fall camp to say, you know what? Justin Flo was so good. And while Isaac Slade Matuatia was good for us last year and was coming back as the leader of this defense, Justin Flo is just overwhelmingly better. And we're hurting ourselves by not playing him over Isaac Slade. Like that didn't happen. And so just because he's a five-star doesn't mean he's automatically just going to be the superstar recruit day one. And I just go back to this idea that like in the recruiting perspective, this is going to happen when you recruit. Well, you should want it to be this way. You should want it so that a five-star doesn't show up and immediately is just the best player on the position group or on the team, because that would indicate the rest of the roster isn't very good. Like you want this to play out. You want a five-star to show up and realize, Oh, wow. I am really good, but I have a lot of room I need to get better at if I want to see the field because, damn, everyone else is really good too. I think I made this point a couple weeks ago. It speaks to the overall health of the roster that you have these five stars coming in and they're hardly playing. That's something that, you you know, again, you go back to like say 2016, 2017, those weren't the best teams. But if you added these players to the roster, they're starting day one, basically. I mean, and I'd have to look at the roster and, and make a, you know, to actually make that call. But Oregon now has the talent at a variety of spots where a five-star doesn't just walk in the door and and become and, you know, and and step into the first team. He has to work for it. Noah Sewell has to work for it. He looks like he's going to be the most likely to start this year. I, I I'll make this is maybe a hot take. I don't expect Dante Manning or Justin Flo to start a game this year. Um, I, and that's where I'm at with those two. I think they're both super talented. Again, we haven't heard anything to the, the contrary. There's just a lot of talent in front of them. I think Dante Manning replaces Didi Lenore at one of the corner spots next year. And gosh, I don't know what happens with Justin Flo in terms of when he fits in because Isaac Slate has another year next year. He could go pro after this year or not. So um, again, this is a good problem to have. And these guys are yeah. going to find ways onto the field. And Andy Avalos has been very, very clear time and time again that they're going to find 
any way possible to get the te- best players and the best roles on the field, even if that means playing 18 to 20 to 22 guys on defense. I think you're going to see these guys play roles this year, but I just think you can say, I'll say right now, I don't expect either of those two guys to start a single game this year unless there's an injury um, or unless they just are balling out in practice and they really take a step. But I think that second part is pretty unlikely. All right. Sixth and last question from at Eras Scout 73. Is there a reason the Ducks are always ranked low in basketball? They always make the tournament and there is no way Arizona State and UCLA is better Three exclamation points there. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. He's referring to basketball. the men's, men's basketball team, not the women's basketball team. We should note women's basketball team uh, ranked 10th nationally by the Associated Press. That came out Tuesday morning. Uh, Matt, you're the basketball guy. You think 20 is too low? Let's start there. Yeah, I do think 20 is too low. But look, I, I think this is exactly what Dana Altman wants. Um, part of – you look at rankings, preseason rankings – and I think part of part of these is all these how these rankings are, are formulated and tabulated. And, and I think how narratives are created in an offseason stem from what teams do from a PR marketing standpoint for themselves in the offseason. And I, I look at an Arizona State and I think of Bobby Hurley is willing to talk basically. He, he does a ton of media interviews. He's tight with a lot of people in the media. They promote their program like hell and look like they should. They're going to be good in, in 2020. Like I, I think they're going to be, you know, one of the better teams. I picked them third in the conference to win, you know, in, in the Pac-12 for a preseason um, media poll uh, that I voted on. I picked Oregon first. I picked UCLA second. I think you could make an argument. All, you know, any three of those teams could win the league. But I look at these teams and I also think that, you know, these rankings are based off of kind of just narratives that are shifted and created and formulated with from Mm -hmm. these schools and how they kind of market themselves to the media and how they kind of go out and, you know, present themselves and off season interviews and and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, Bobby Hurley is going to rave about his guys and, Gonzaga Mark Few, he's going to rave about his guys. And look, I'll, I'll much rather trust a Gonzaga Mark Few raving about his guys than I'll trust Bobby Hurley at Arizona State because Few is much more accomplished than Bobby Hurley um, at Arizona State. Dana Altman doesn't do that. Like, I'll speak to Dana Altman in the offseason for a media, and you know he's not going to come out, and he's, he's not going to go out and say – I think we have a chance to be a final four team, or I think we have a chance to have the talent and go out and we should be the favorites to win the conference. Like he's not going to say that he, he's going to say, I like the, I like the roster makeup. I'm excited to see what we do. Um, I think we have the talent to compete for a conference championship, but so much more goes into that. And you, and, and he downplays it. He wants his team to, and this is just me now speculating here, but Dana just wants his teams to be underappreciated. They want to be, you know, lower in the rankings because then he has something to bitch about and he has something to complain about. And he can go to them and say, you guys are not respected. You need, you know, you need to go out there and prove them wrong. And he, he said it like a week ago, we were interviewing him and he came out and this is like one of the most, like one of the most, positive things he's ever said in the last four or five, six years at Oregon ahead of a season. And this is where, to me, 
covering him now for going on his 11th season, I can kind of like mentally go, okay, they're going to be really good because he says this, and this is what he said. He was asked just kind of about um, the team and how things are going and practice and their outlook and their approach and, and kind of how they're, how they're looking in, in, in camp right now. And he prefaced it by saying, well, we're only doing five on five. We're only doing five on air. We're not playing man to man, you know, body to body. We're not full contact yet. But with that understanding, I have nothing to complain about. Usually around this time, I like to have something to complain about, and I don't have anything to complain about. He says the team is working hard. They're looking really good in, in five-on-air situations. They're taking every drill seriously. They're, you know, they're, they're minimizing their bad practice days. They're minimizing their bad, their bad practice drills in each of the day's practice. Um, you know, and normally he's right. He always has something to complain about and he tries and hammers that home. And he said, right now, like he said, we look really good. Now we'll see. And he, he did preface it by saying, we'll see what happens when we start doing, you know, five on five instead of five on air or three on three instead of three on air or what have you. But he said, right now they look really good. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Dana Altman wants this. Like, he doesn't want to be picked first in the conference. He doesn't want to be the highest ranked team in the conference going into the year because that puts a target on his back. And he wants his team to be hungry and be able to go out and dominate. And I think we're going to see a team that is older, is experienced. They've got big guys. They've got wings. They've got guards. And yeah, they've got to replace Peyton Pritchard. And that's going to be difficult. There's no doubt about it. They're going to take a step back in some areas of, the, of their team this season because of what Peyton Pritchard was able to do. They're going to miss... Uh, Anthony Mathis and his three-point shooting. He said that they don't have a guy like Mathis on this team where, you know, Mathis was automatic from three and, and was just, you know, unlimited range. And Pritchard developed into that as well in his senior year. And he said this year's team, they don't have that just, you know, unconscious three-point shooter on the team, but they have a ton of guys that when they step into a shot or if they get set up for a nice shot, they can knock it down. They can consistently knock it down. And he said that they have better shooters this year at the forward spot. They, they feel like they've got guys that can stretch the floor out a little bit more. He said Chandler Lawson. He said Eugene Omari, uh, Eric Williams, Luke Wurr. He said in following Dante, while he's not going to shoot threes, he's going to be able to shoot you know elbow jumpers now. Um, this team is a better shooting team from that regard. And he also said this team has better playmakers across the board. Obviously Peyton Pritchett was the best playmaker on the team last year and would be the best playmaker on the team this season, but they have a lot of guys that can kind of break down to a defense on their own and create for other guys to, to get an open look and drive and kick out. And so he said the team's going to play different from how it played last year. That was roster determined and, and this year's roster determined, but it feels like this year's team maybe is a little bit more versatile and, and doesn't have to rely on, solely on Peyton Pritchard to do all the heavy lifting. I agree 100% with you in terms of the national media perspective being what it is with Oregon, because as Matt and I know, any good Dana Altman impression begins with, Oh, I don't know. You know, in his, you know what I mean? Like every, cause he deflects every possible question praising his group. It's always, yeah. Oh, I don't know. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. And you're right. The greatest praise that you can hear from him is not complaining about something. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you nailed that and, point. That's so true. It's so true. And that's why I think that's a common trait among coaching, you know, whether that's Dana Allman at basketball, um, whether that's 
you know, football. Like we've noticed like Joe Moorhead and Andy Avalos, the coordinators, like they will not give praise to any player unless it's a warranted and yeah. B sometimes, even if it's warranted, they won't do it, they, you know, because they want to push because they know they can get even more out of that guy. Um, they don't want to create a sense of they've arrived. They've, they're, they're here. They don't have things to get better on. And that mentality when it spews over an entire program creates what we've seen out of Dan Altman and the Oregon Duck basketball program. doesn't matter who they lose the year before they're going to be in contention for the conference championship. And more than likely the last, I think the last five years, Eric, four of the last five years, they've won either the conference championship or the regular season championship. And when you get that type of a result, it's because of Dana Altman refusing. It's not the only reason you have to have good players. You have to have a little bit of luck. You have to stay healthy. You have to have good coaching, but it's also a culture and a mindset that you have never arrived and you will always have, always have something to get better at. And it's why in November and December, and quite frankly, in January, Dana is a bad interview because they it's win the a worst. big game. They win by 30. He's going to, he's going to come back and go, yeah, well, we shot 13 of 25 from the free throw line. That's going to hurt us in February and March. And individually in that one instance, Oregon fan is feeling awesome. Oh, wow. We just beat Memphis by 20 points or, you know, we, we went to Michigan and won this huge game and Dana Altman is going to come out and he's go, yeah, big win, huge win. Awesome shot. Hell of a finish. Love the way our team competed. I'm excited about this, but Michigan beat us in the inside and we have to wrap up our rebounding because we got lucky today. We got a game winning shot from Matt, from Peyton Pritchard. But if that doesn't happen and we don't rebound the basketball in two weeks when we play Arizona, we're going to lose that game by 10. And that's the reason why Altman is the way he is because he's always finding something to get better at. And it's why I think Mario Cristobal is so good. I think it's the all, it's always the reason why um, Kelly Graves for the women's team from a basketball perspective is good. Now Kelly Graves, he's a little bit more forthcoming with the media, but I also think behind closed doors, um, he's a little bit more stricter on the team than he is. The he leads to believe from my own personal opinion. And also I think he has a better understanding of can his team handle him going out and saying those types of things that we are the best team in the country like he did last year. And I think they could because of the, the makeup of that team, the talent that they had on that team, they knew that they were the best team in the country. And it was almost kind of like their coach didn't say that maybe it'd be a bigger issue, but I think all three of those coaches fall on this line of they're not going to praise you unless you are warranting of it. hundred percent. And I think, again, we've talked about this before. Oregon is very, very blessed and fortunate to have those three leaders atop those programs. I think really three of the best coaches in the country, period. No doubt about I, it. And I, I cer- think and certainly the three, I think the three best in their sport in the conference too. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to go even further and say, I think it's, guaranteed Altman and Graves are the best coaches from program perspective history for the men oh, yeah. and the women's teams. Um, my, uh, from Mario Cristobal perspective from the football team, he's trending that way. He's not there yet. Um, and that's a podcast we could maybe do at a later time, but I just think that he's going to be in that. He's certainly recruiting standpoint, culture standpoint, development standpoint. He, he, he's one or two in those categories from a wins and losses perspective. He's not there yet, but the way things are shaping Oregon could 
theoretically in the next couple of years say they have in the current capacity, the best coach in program history of all three of those sports. Pretty cool. Very cool. Very, very cool. And again, we should note basketball season is fast approaching too. Oh Typically, gosh, don't tell me. <laughs> well, it's going to be really, really fun, but we are yes. going to be working um, very, very hard. We shouldn't complain because we're covering sports. It, yeah, and it's a great. We have four a great months job. ago, we were just begging for something to cover. Uh, but yes, basketball is literally two weeks away, fifteen days, fourteen days away. Season's about here. Both teams are going to be are in the top ten or in the top twenty. Women are are 10th in the country in the AP poll. The men are 20th in the country in the AP poll. The football team uh, is approaching top 10 status. Once again, it's just another great year of Oregon athletics from the the three most popular sports. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for submitting uh, your reviews on the show as well. We're seeing those go up. Uh, thank you for considering subscribing. You could do so today for $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that, or go and subscribe with the annual membership. Save $36 over the course of the year when you pay that upfront payment uh, compared to the month-to-month price. That helps also support the podcast and helps us continue to do these on a regular basis. Uh, we will be back on Thursday. We will have a Washington State beat reporter uh, from our Cougar affiliate within the 24-7 Sports Network on the site as well, on the podcast, breaking down the Cougars, getting you ready for this weekend's football game. Thank you for listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.